Welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. Let's grab our Bibles together and turn to the book of Titus. We are finishing uh, a series in the book of Titus today. And um, this book's three short chapters, 46 verses written from the Apostle Paul as a, as a letter challenging Titus to lead the churches in Crete to be healthy and strong. And what, one thing that we're learning is um, that health and purity in the church make a huge impact and difference on whether or not the church accomplishes her mission. The mission that Jesus gave to and through the church is simple. Make disciples of all nations. But a church without leadership and a church stuck in the rut of worldliness will not fulfill her mission. And so Paul trusts Titus. He's confident that these young churches on the island of Crete will be grounded in the gospel, will be transformed by God's grace through teaching But don't miss the details of how Paul believes that this transformation of health and stability is going to come about through real relationship. That's what we're seeing all the way through this letter. We're seeing that it's in real relationships. We at Mountain View, we say it this way. Real discipleship happens in real relationship. So we're called, according to Titus, we're called to be a people brought together by the mercy and grace of God. Of Jesus. So just a quick review before we jump in. In chapter one, uh, Titus is called to establish elders in the churches in every town. Elders or pastors are to be the shepherds and overseers of these churches. They're to teach biblically sound doctrine and to guard the church from false teaching. An elder should exemplify true faith in Christ and a life of being transformed by the gospel. They're not perfect. Uh, They're they're submitted to Jesus and being transformed by the gospel. In chapter two, Titus is calling uh, or Paul's calling Titus to raise up older people like older men and older women to disciple young believers. What he's saying essentially is that years of life experience and wisdom paired with the gospel help us to make disciples. God is saving sinners through Jesus Christ and he's calling them to live changed lives in the everyday stuff of life. We, we've seen that he's changing us on the job. He changes how we think politically. He changes how we act at the ballpark. He changes how we operate at home. All of that's impacted by the gospel. But relationship is really how all that happens. Older men with younger men. Older women with younger women. Titus 2.14. Jesus says that he has saved for himself A people, a people. Salvation is not as individualistic as we thought or usually as we talk. We together are rescued and brought into a family, a gospel community. This is the title of today's message and the way we'll finish uh, this letter. It is that we are a people of mercy, a people of mercy. Well, in chapter three. Paul reminds Titus of who we were before salvation, who Christ is and what he's done to save sinners like us. How many of you are sinners in the room? Anybody? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you just lied. So you're now a sinner. So you can you can join the rest of us. Right. In light of his goodness and loving kindness, Jesus, his goodness and loving kindness, we are to be a people zealous 
for good works. And that's where we're going to focus today. As we live for Christ, the watching world will see the transforming power of the gospel. Much like the paralytic was healed. And as he leapt up and ran home, his message of transforming work of Jesus was incredibly powerful. And so should ours be. We are, according to Titus, a people who have been shown great mercy. Now that you're settled in your seats, we always stand in honor of God's word. Would you stand with me as we read from Titus chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3? We're going to pick up and read what really are the gospel-centered roots of this letter. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and then we'll skip down and read chapter 3. Verses 3 through 8. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And down to chapter three, verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Father, you are Lord of lords, King of kings. And we look to you in these days, certainly as there is unrest in the world, we come to the throne of Jesus where there is no unrest. Your throne is an unshaken kingdom and we take comfort and confidence in you. Lord, we trust in you. We believe that through your word, you are sanctifying your church. May it be so today. Have your way in us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the scripture here says that we are a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Man, Willie, I missed you last week, brother. 
this will be the main focus of our text, right? We, we have been brought in as a people, a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. God is saving a people, not just persons, not just individuals, not just men, not just women, a people. As soon as I read this text in preparation for this series, I knew that the Lord was wanting to teach us that we're meant to be living life together as a people, serving our king together as a people. And my mind immediately went to another text in Scripture where we see um, Peter identify who is this people and what is it that makes them a people we find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, the scripture says it is mercy. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received, say it with me, mercy. Now, I wonder if mercy is really how we think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I wonder if it's really mercy that comes to our minds first. It seems to me that we tend to prefer that salvation comes to us in terms of grace. Right. So what is the difference? Well, if you're taking notes, simply put, maybe oversimplified even. Here's a simple definition of distinctions between grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. It is getting from God the riches of God by way of Jesus Christ, God's favor that is unmerited, right? It's getting what you do not deserve. We love grace, receiving, 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 right? We love it. Mercy. The distinction between mercy and grace is that mercy is actually not getting What you do deserve. The suffering and wrath of eternal judgment. You don't get it as a believer in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took it for you. On the cross, the mercy of God comes to us because the wrath of God came to Jesus. But the Bible says that we are to be a people who are defined, 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why is this such a distinguishing idea? What impact does mercy have on us? What kind of people is it that God is bringing into his possession? And I want to teach us four truths from the whole letter of Titus, beginning with this one. We are, as God's people, meant to be a humble people, a humble people. Chapter three, verse three, Paul begins by saying, we for we ourselves, we were foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions. And he goes on and on, listing out who we were. And why is he doing that? He's detailing how undeserving we are. 
Why would we need to remember that? Shouldn't we just move on? Shouldn't we let the past be the past? Let's move on into the future of who we are now. Why would we need to look back and constantly go, okay, Paul, what's the deal with the reminder? Well, he does this all the time. Just two more examples. One would be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And it goes on and on, telling us who we were. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, it's even more personal for Paul. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. What does he say? I received what? Mercy. And then he tells us why. He says, I I was ignorant, but it's the grace of our Lord that overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners. But look at what he says now. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying to us, I'm a terrible sinner. Look at who I was. I didn't deserve mercy, but I received mercy. Why did I receive mercy? It's to show how patient and kind and loving that Jesus is. It has nothing to do with my goodness. God wants to create in us a humble people. Mercy. It means we've been spared the awful judgment we deserve. It means that someone greater than us, namely Jesus Christ, was gravely offended by us. And yet he graciously covers our offense and releases us from our debt. (laughs) To say that mercy should be the defining attribute of who we are as a people is to admit our wrong. It's to take ownership of who we are as sinners. It's to lay claim only to our weakness, not our strength. It's to take a posture of humility before God, who could rightfully crush us with judgment. Rightfully. Every human on the planet has the same damning problem. We have sinned against a holy God. We are hopeless unless God shows us mercy. One thing I believe the American church needs to get a grip on is we are not good people. But we have a good God. This is the principle behind mercy. Mercy makes little of us. It makes much of God. It's a constant awareness of who I am without him. Does anybody remember playing the game as kids? Probably ladies, you didn't play the game, but boys, I know you did. It was called mercy. You know what I'm talking about? 
You get a grip on some other guy's hands. You interlace your fingers like this. And you just go to cranking on them, bending on them like that. And the whole goal is just to hurt him so bad that he screams mercy, right? That's the whole objective. It's to bend his little fingers until they snap. And finally, something within him snaps, right? But maybe you're like me and you're the one who hurts most because I have weak little fingers. And so maybe you cry out for mercy and the stronger kid loosens his grip and your fingers stop hurting. But your fingers may have stopped hurting, but your pride has been mortally wounded. Because you said, mercy. It's the last thing you wanted. Was to be in a position of needing mercy. I think it's probably the same for us spiritually. We run from this idea. We reject it. We don't like to view ourselves like this. We love our independence, our strength. But God says what brings us together is his mercy, not our might. It forces a deep kind of humility. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 27 through 31 say that he chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. How does that feel? He chose you. <laughs> Let's go back through that list. Foolish, weak, lowly, despised. God chose you. Well, it explains why he chose us so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. As people of mercy, we have no place for boasting. We boast only in the Lord. We have been given mercy, but church, we're honestly still a mess, aren't we? We are still a mess. We still need God's loving kindness and grace and mercy today. I love the passage in Lamentations. It says his mercies are new every morning. I love it. I need mercy every day. So he creates in us a humility. He wants us to be a humble people Secondly, God wants an honest people, an honest people. We read that the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness. Chapter two, verse 12. He's training us. We are still becoming. We are in training. We are in process. Paul would say, I have not arrived. I'm still striving. I have not arrived. It's humbling to see yourself for who you truly are. To take an honest look in the mirror. Uh, Paul is forcing the point here. We're, we're still being shaped and trained. We have not arrived, right? Uh, a, a bigger reason or a big reason that this letter has even been written is because these churches in Crete were young and immature and needed a lot of change. So do I. So do you. When we started this series in the book of Titus, I told you uh, about my uh, starting a new endeavor to join, you know, join the gym and to pick up a, a, a personal trainer. And um, yeah, that's been going kind of well. Um, but I did tell you about my hatred for leg day. Uh, leg day, right? This morning, uh, Ted was asking me if I had on skinny jeans. I said, no, they're just jeans. There's a fat man underneath. LAUGHTER uh, so, but I hate leg day, like hate leg day. I don't usually mind working out in areas of my strength, in areas where I'm comfortable, where I'm, where I'm, you know, I like this, this is good, this is good, but then I have to do leg day and I just 
despise leg day. But here's the reality that we've come to know and understand is that if we're truly going to see growth and real maturity in Christ, then at least three things are needed. And these sort of overlap. Some of these are me coaching myself to actually go to the gym in the morning. And, And these are also for us as a people spiritually. The physical to spiritual parallel is sometimes helpful. So here are three things that you need as you're being honest with yourself. You need, first of all, to be honest. I must be honest. You know that pretending does nothing for anyone, like nothing. So just like Paul has written multiple times now, we're to own and admit our weakness. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about confessing sin? Now, I assume you believe you should confess sin to God. I mean, Jesus taught us to pray that way. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against. We're obviously meant to pray for forgiveness from God, to confess our sins and to pray for forgiveness from God. But what about confession to others? How honest with you, with others, are you about your sins and your struggles? Do you have a handful of trusted brothers or ladies, sisters in Christ that you can go to with your weaknesses and your hardships? We confess sin to God for forgiveness. But when we confess to others, we find freedom. Transparency in confession Disarms the enemy's most used weapons of shame and isolation. When you're willing to say it, the enemy can no longer hold you in bondage to shame. And when you're willing to trust in some people, you're no longer alone. The additional source of accountability and love. And a few voices helping you believe the truth of the gospel over the lies of the enemy. Sometimes that's the key to real breakthrough. Are you honest? I must be honest. Secondly, I must welcome coaching. I must welcome coaching. On leg day in particular, when I walk in the gym, I just say, Justin, just say yes. Just say yes. Whatever he tells you to do, just yes. Well, as we just said, the value of true gospel community is immeasurable. You really don't see yourself as clearly as you think. I might should say that again. You don't see yourself as clearly as you think you do. So invite others who love you to speak the truth in love to you. And then trust them more than you do yourself. Because many times when we look in the mirror, we see what we want to see. But others see us for who we are. If you really want to change and mature in your walk with Christ, you'll listen to those who speak the truth in love. So listen and then make adjustments. And that leads to the third one here. I must embrace change. I must embrace change. You can't keep doing the same things and expect different results. Right? I didn't make that up, but it's out there and it's pretty good. You can't keep doing the same things and expect something different. 
With your body, there's really two big factors at play, right? It's your diet and your exercise. If you don't make changes in at least these two areas, you won't see the transformation you want. Well, similarly, spiritually, your spiritual health is guided by some primary factors as well. There's probably more, but I want to give you these three. The the Word of God. We need a healthy diet of God's Word. You can't just eat this one meal every week and expect to be healthy. You've got to dig into the word yourself. Discover who God is. Discover the truth of the gospel. Hold on to those truths when all the world is lying to you. I I could go off here on some statistics about how much time we spend on media today. It's all trying to pull your mind in a certain direction. And you've got to, as Paul said, renew your mind with the word of God. Dig into the Bible and feast on the truth. The word of God, the people of God. We've talked about this, but gospel community, real relationships. That's where it's at. That's why we call them life groups is because this is where real life is meant to happen. I want you to come together and learn to talk the gospel to each other. Learn to confess sin to one another. Learn to sort of talk out truth from scripture that actually matters in life. An ancient proverb says, if you lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas. The Bible says it this way. Bad company corrupts good character. You will become like the five people you spend the most time with. So you might should think about who those people are and do you really want to be like them? And I would encourage you to think about Who's the person I admire the most spiritually? Who's the person that I want to be like? I want to, I want to grow and mature in my walk with Christ like that person. And then start spending time with them. People of God. And the third one is the mission of God. As you give your life to the mission of God, he changes you. Jesus said to his very first disciples in Matthew 4, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus does a transforming work as we commit to his mission. He will make us new. All right, so we're to be a humble people, an honest people, and a hopeful people. A hopeful people. I watched this week as the people in Ukraine huddled together in a subway uh, tunnel. I suppose that's what it was. To shelter from the Russian attacks, the bombs, the gunfire. In one particular video, they were singing songs of worship to God and understand the words. But I did catch the tune. I started singing it myself. And then I read the caption that said something about how Christians are uncommonly hopeful. Uncommonly hopeful. And I thought, what a great description These are people whose lives have been turned upside down by war. Families who've been separated. Civilian men, women who are taking up weapons to fight. I don't know if you saw the imagery of like a grandmother holding a a rifle this week. I, I saw that and was like, wow. We're talking about major change. Like, I mean, she was knitting hours before they put a rifle in her hand. I'm sure of it, right? This is significant change. And they're praising God. Praising. It's because their hope and our hope 
is not founded in our safety and security here. It's in the unshakable promises of God. Three times in the book of Titus, our focus is drawn to the word hope. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our hope is not in the here and now. Our hope is not wishful finger crossing. Our hope rests in our God. He has promised eternal life to all who are justified by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our hope is certain, church. When the Bible speaks of hope, it doesn't speak of wishful thinking. It's not talking about, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. It's talking about a certainty that is meant to bring confidence to you in the midst of craziness. And the Bible speaks about hope. It speaks about it in these three ways in the book of Titus. God's promise. Listen, our God who never lies has promised eternal life to us. This is our hope. I love that expression. God, by the way, who never lies, made a promise. You can hope on it. Our hope is certain because of the gospel. The gospel Jesus, the Bible says in Titus 2, verse uh, 13 to 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us. It's the gospel of Jesus, the, the death of Jesus Christ. His broken body and his shed blood is the anchor for our souls for why we can believe that God is for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, how will he not? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We can trust in the character of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He gave himself to redeem us and to purify us. I was thinking about that word redeem this week. And I wanted to share this with you before we finish. To be redeemed means to be bought back. To have the price paid for your freedom. Just last week, uh, the missionaries that we support in Lebanon redeemed another baby from the hospital. Did you know that uh, our missionaries do this? Um, Our missionaries, one of the things that we fund and pay for is a redemption ministry. Lebanon is is an incredibly poor um, and and a very depressed economic situation. And the poorest of the poor are the ones that uh, Chris and Kim work with, the refugees, uh, specifically from Syria and a few other places. But what happens when a woman gives birth to a baby is usually she's in the hospital. She gives birth to a baby that Woman, when she's well, she's allowed to leave, but the baby cannot leave until the bill is paid. They will not release the baby. And it's a terrible thing that happens. Many women are separated from their newborn babies for a painfully long time. 
All because of money. In steps the church of Jesus. And the missionaries that we support take the funds that we send and they go to the hospital and they pay the debt. They take the baby with some women and they go back to the tent in the refugee camp and they give the baby back to the mother. Just this week, a child was redeemed out of the NICU unit. Taken back to its mother. Who hasn't seen her baby in a very long time. And the women that work alongside with Chris and Kim are able to build bridges for the gospel. That woman is now being taught in the school that we've helped to start. And she's being taught how to read using the Bible. She's being taught the gospel. And through this redemption ministry, many women have come to know Jesus. And many of their children who are now under their care, have also come to know Jesus. Praise God. Amen. Amen. This is what it means to be redeemed. But the Bible says that in the gospel, you and I were redeemed by Jesus, that he paid the price with his life to set you free. You've been brought into a family of people. And he is purifying us, separating us from our sin as far as the east is from the west. But every day, purifying us. We're meant to be a hopeful people. We hope in the promise of God, the gospel of Jesus and the grace of Christ. The guarantee for our hope is not our good works, Paul said in in Titus. It's his. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. We are justified by grace. And because of that, we have hope as heirs of eternal life. So hopeful people. And lastly, a helpful people. God is rescuing a people so that we will be zealous for good works. Don't miss the word zealous. It's not just that God is saving people to do good things. There's lots of people who, for whatever reasons, want to do good things. God is redeeming people and putting a new heart in them to make them zealous for good works. The rescuing work of Christ is a heart work. It's a transformation on the inside that works its way outside. I want you to notice the emphasis on life change and good works in Titus chapter one, verse one. He says the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Chapter one, verse 16. They Others claim the power of God, but they deny him by their works. Chapter two, verse one, teach what accords, what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter two, verse seven, you're to be a model of good works. Chapter two, verse 14, we're a people zealous for good works. Chapter three, verse one, ready for every good work. Chapter three, verse eight, devote themselves to good works. Chapter three, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. I think Paul is telling Titus that the church is meant to be a people who are helpful who are devoted and committed to good work. Now, we usually here emphasize that it's not our good works that save us. And that is true concerning salvation. Titus 3, 5, he saved us specifically not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, right? But now focus in on chapter 3, verse 14 for a moment. Chapter 3, verse 14. We, as a people... Defined by the mercy of God 
are to devote ourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Church, listen. I want you to sit up again like last week. Come on, sit up. Those chairs are way too comfortable. Come on. We are people of mercy. As recipients of his mercy. Listen, listen. When we see brokenness and sin, we see it with new eyes. We don't look on the hurting with judgment. But with sympathy and love. We long for the drug addict to find Christ and be totally free, not just from addiction, but eternally free from sin. We take the gospel to our local jail. We support our chaplain. Why? Well, because those men and women are no less deserving of the mercy of Jesus than we are. And God is saving the lowly to shame the wise. We pay, we pay for the release of babies, of poor refugees somewhere in the Middle East that we'll never meet. Why? Because God is redeeming Muslims to faith in Christ through the loving kindness of Jesus and his people who are devoted to good works. We are a people of mercy. We're not saved by our works, but we are certainly saved to do good works in the name of Jesus so that in us, God would be glorified and the lost would be saved. We and that includes you. It's not you alone. It's you along with us. We are the people of God saved by the grace of God for good works unto the glory of God. 